I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the fifth edition of our 2016 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Soil Testing to Achieve Adequate No-Till Nutrient Levels, is brought to you by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing, your fertilizing equipment specialist, for sponsoring today's episode. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's Precision Fertilizer Placement Solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at www.montagmfg.com or call today at 712-852-4574. Every time no-tillers remove crops from the field, they remove all of the plant nutrients and if the soil is short on available nutrients, either commercial or organic fertilizer must be applied to maintain productive yields. But if the soil has a high supply of nutrients, soil testing is a must to avoid over-application, which may contribute to environmental problems. In this podcast episode, Ray Ward, founder and president of Ward Laboratories in Kearney, Nebraska, We'll discuss the essential nutrients plants need in an optimal soil test value of each nutrient. He'll also talk about the trace elements that are crucial for plant growth and development and the importance of returning animal manures to fields at proper rates. Let's join Ray now as he talks about nutrient cycling and removal by plants and the important soil testing metrics commonly used at his lab to provide test reports that serve as a basis for nutrient management decisions. This uh, topic today, talking about uh, soil tests, and these are, I'm a soil fertility guy that's been around for 50 years, and, and all the no-till and the soil health and things, there might be changing some things. As, as Dwayne said yesterday, you know, our calibrations based on the old tillage stuff. And so that's kind of where I am on the fertility part, but that's what we're going to talk about and discuss some things as we go along. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is a nutrient cycling, and, and uh, sometimes they call it mining. The farmers are mining the nutrients out of the soil, and no matter how you look at that, when you haul the corn off or any other grain that you're producing or any forage you're producing, you're taking plant nutrients off that field. And in the case of corn, now these numbers here are from uh, IPNI. If you want to go to their website, IPNI is International Plant Nutrition Institute, and they have a whole series of crops with, with uh, NPK and sulfur. They don't have zinc on there. I put zinc on because in, zinc is important in Nebraska by far. Uh, so, you know, 240 bushel corn takes off 161 pounds of nitrogen. That's an average. It's a protein content about 9% on a dry basis in the corn grain. Uh, phosphorus, 0.35 pound of P205, 84 pounds taken off. The guy's taken off uh, 240 bushel corn, removing 150 pounds, 1152. So how are you going to put that back on? And, and 
So those are, those are the kind of things we're looking at, potassium. And if you're, for easy remembering, if you, if you can't, uh, nitrogen's two-thirds of a pound, phosphorus a third of a pound, and potassium a fourth of a pound per bushel. So it's kind of easy remembering if you, if you don't want to write the numbers down. Uh, sulfur, then, is uh, one that we talked about. I heard yesterday uh, uh, the, the acid rain thing, and we got rid of sulfur in the water. Well, now we've got to buy the damn stuff and put it on. We used to get it free. And then zinc is, uh, I don't know how important zinc is in some of the, the Corn Belt area, but in the Great Plains, zinc is uh, very important for us to, to manage that. And then, and then we have all these other things that go on. And this afternoon, I'll talk a little bit about some trace elements, but chloride on the grain, the grass crops, chloride is pretty important. And, and of course, if you guys are using potash or 0060, you got all the chloride you need. But in the, in the West, we're, we're putting some 0060 on for the chloride content or buying ammonium chloride to use. Manganese, uh, iron, copper, Boron and molybdenum, those are all really small amounts. But we've been taking crops off that land for, what, 150 years, 200 years in some cases. So we might be getting low. You never know for sure. And, and you know, the, the part of the soil health movement that's going on that I'm concerned about is how do we keep this land producing for the next thousand years? Or you can go on, they always have some date. But but we can abuse the land now. We've just really washed a lot of stuff away already, and we're trying to build that back up. And so think about the stewardship of keeping this land for, for civilization, if you want to call it that, or for future generations. And so when we're taking this, these things off of here, we've got to replace them. Do we go to China and get that, as Beck talked about yesterday? Or uh, are we going to mine some stuff and put it on and and make some ammonia and, and be able to put nitrogen fertilizer on. It's, it's, uh, it's just that way. And then the sick part of it is, is uh, bringing all that New York uh, sewage sludge out here. And then if you really didn't want to mine any nutrients, you're going to have to grind up all the bodies and spread the bone meal out on the, on the land also. Because where are you going to, how are you going to maintain production if you don't maintain that fertility? And so then I'm going to go through the i got soybeans in here, too, just to show you that, that soybeans take phosphorus and potassium. They take more potassium out than corn does, and, and uh, a little bit of sulfur and some zinc, like the corn does. And, and so just, just remember those things. And, and now these are just the grain. So those guys that are bailing up that, the stalks to haul some damn place, you know what I call those big round bales out in the field? As Beck said yesterday, cows without legs. Why do you pamper the cows and haul feed to them? Why don't you make them go get it themselves? Even so, then the minerals stay in the field. It's, it's just kind of that simple. So uh, I'm going to go through our soil test reports as we have them in our, our laboratory. And the first one on the list is pH. And, and you know, that, uh, we went down to Rick Haney and, and got this Haney test that Lance talked about last night. And I asked Rick, where's pH? I, I, you can't, can't even look at a soil report if you don't know what pH is. And he said, oh, I think I can tell that from the other parameters. And yeah, I told Lance, we're putting pH on the report, and we're putting organic matter on the report, too. So, so neutral is 6.2 to 7.2. If, if you're in that range, you don't, don't need to worry about liming. Uh, the very acid 
is less than 5.1. And in uh, some areas in, in Nebraska, we're, we're getting our dryland areas to get down to this pH. And then aluminum starts becoming available when you get below 5. So, so that's a real concern. Moderately acid, 5.1 to 5.6. And so I tell guys, in, this, in the, in the 5.1 and less, you got to put lime on. You don't, no matter what it costs, you got to get lime on. In the 5.1 to 5.6, you bought to be making plans to get lime on. Now, in, in the eastern area, that's just a given that you're going to put lime on. And then uh, the alkaline is uh, 7.3 to uh, 7.8, which is not bad. And then the very alkaline is 7, 7 9 to 8.4. If you have a pH above 8.4, you have sodium in the soil. Lime, pH of lime is 8.3. So, so if you... If the pH goes above 8.3, you got some other problems, and it's probably sodium that's in that, in that soil. So uh, on our, in our case, uh, we put, start recommending lime usually for corn, uh, 5.6 and less. So, so we have alkaline subsoils out in Nebraska, in the Great Plains, so we don't have to worry about it quite as much as where you might have acid subsoil. And how do, how do we get lime to move down? The other thing I want to say about lime is, uh, I guess I'll turn the slide because we measure the amount of lime we put on by the buffer pH. The buffer pH, you know, the, the pH measures the active acidity out in the solution as we run the pH. And then the buffer comes along and scrapes all the hydrogen ions off the exchange complex, puts it out in the solution, and the more hydrogen on the exchange complex, the lower the buffer pH goes, and that tells us the total acidity. How much acidity do we have in that soil that we have to neutralize? And in, in our case, we're using a Woodworth buffer out of uh, Missouri. And, it, and it's just a simple calculation. 7 minus the buffer pH times 4 is uh, the amount of lime that needs to be put on. And, and we're talking about one-to-one -one water, uh, soil water pH, not salt pH that Missouri has. But uh, So then you take the, that ECC divided by the effectiveness of the lime that you're buying and that's the rate or how much lime you would put on. And, and uh, you know, in, in Nebraska, it might cost 25 or 50 bucks a ton to get lime put on, and so there's a lot of wanting to do that. And then they own, if, if they're renting the land, and I, I tell guys that in, in, to make a six-year agreement with the landlord that you, you'll pay for the lime if you're going to do that if the landlord won't buy it, and then you... If he gets rid of you, then he has to pay you for the one-sixth or two-sixth or three-sixth, whatever it might be, so that uh, you can get, be compensated for that. But it really, you know, the lime we've always recommended as a corrective application. You put lime on, correct the pH, and go from there. Uh, the next test in our, our uh, group is uh, EC. We run EC on all soil samples, which is the electroconductivity measures soluble salts. And this is on the one-to-one -one soil, soil water pH uh, sample. And, and when we have a pH, uh, soluble salt of 0.1 to 0.75, we don't have any salt problems, don't have any salinity problems. But if you have an EC down at 0.05 to 0.1, we really don't have much life in that soil because, of, because the microbes decomposing things and their activity always creates some soluble salts nitrate and ammonia and, and calcium and magnesium sulfate and all those things are there. And, and so 
if it's really low, it's kind of bad. And then if you get 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, that's really a great indication that the soil is working good for you. If you get, get above uh, 1.5, you got serious saline problems. And, and uh, I don't know, the saline seeps is the thing that what Dwayne talked about. We picked that up. And in the Ar Arkansas River Valley, Colorado, Kansas, got a lot of saline areas. So, no, South Platte River in uh, uh, northern, uh, northeastern Colorado's got some salts. But, but we're pretty, uh, pretty lucky in most places. You get in South Dakota where Beck's from, you don't know what the heck you're going to get across, but we got some pretty high uh, saline areas up there that around the potholes, the glacial, uh, glacial lake potholes. Uh, those soluble salts, calcium, magnesium, sulfate, nitrate, other plant nutrients. Most of those salts are plant nutrients, and they just got too, if you got a problem, they got too high. And then uh, the bottom one there, alkali spots, that's the old term for sodic soils. And alkali implies that you got sodium in that soil. So the, so the soluble salts can be lots of different ions. But the sodium is the one that seals the soil and crusts it so that you can't get water to go in. And I think some of the, you know, the, some of the gypsum that's being promoted as, as opening up the soil, I don't think you have sodium in your soil, but, but we lack uh, some soluble calcium and magnesium. And the calcium magnesiums are two positives and so they hook the clays together and make granules out of it. And, and, and then uh, that's, those are the kind of the aggregates that allows water to go in. And if you separate that, you know, it's one of those things that I tell farmers that a question come up one time. You don't realize how small stuff is. And the largest clay particle is two microns in diameter. Not very big. You don't know what a micron is. But if I lay 5,000 of those edge to edge, I'll have one centimeter which is three-eighths of an inch. And to make a square out of that, I have 5,000 times 5,000, 25 million clay particles, one layer thick, three-eighths of an inch square. I build that up to three-eighths of an inch cube, 5,000 times 25 million is 125 billion clay particles in three-eighths of an inch cube, if it's 100% clay. So, so when the raindrop pounds on the soil, breaks that sand, silt, and clay apart, the clays just seal it. That's what forms that crust. And if you don't want a crust on your land, you've got to keep it covered. You've heard plenty of that about those things. And I know I, I get to talking, I've got to keep moving, get things going. Organic matter uh, holds water and plant nutrients in this 58% carbon. So when you talk about sequestering carbon, you build organic matter, well, yeah, you're storing a lot of carbon. Paul Yassid, Roger Memorial Farm, East of Lincoln, we, we took soil samples of six feet. It's 76 tons of carbon in six foot of soil per acre. So when you talk about sequestering carbon, uh, yeah, we can, we can do a lot of that stuff. What's in organic matter? 1% organic matter contains 1,000 pounds of nitrogen, 220 pounds of P205, 140 pounds of K2O, 140 pounds of sulfur, and all the other plant nutrients. The organic matter contains the plant nutrients. And infertility and soil health and all these things we're trying to do, if we are taking the nutrient out of organic matter, we're not building organic matter. And, and so it's, you have to kind of make sure you got your fertility in a good shape to, uh, to build organic matter. But when somebody says, I built my organic matter 1% in three years, how in the hell do you get 1,000 pounds of nitrogen in there? 
But then, and that's part of that is the cover crops and the, and the legumes in that cover crop are fixing the nitrogen. They can't pour nitrogen fertilizer on and make organic matter. It has to be organic. It has to, be, has to go through the microbes and has to go through the plants to get there. So uh, kind of keep those things in mind. And that's why we, want, why we talk about how important organic matter is. Understand the first 80 years or 70, 80 years or maybe longer that we farmed, we robbed organic matter. That's why the organic matter dropped in those soils. We took the nutrients out of the organic matter because we didn't, didn't have fertilizer and, or didn't know enough to put the stuff on. I finally went to college and learned that you could put fertilizer on and we started growing better crops. But now, and then we're, we're kind of hydroponics, you know, putting, we didn't have the soil life, we just put fertilizer out and now we're learning that if we can, if we can get the good soil life, we can keep the, moderate those rates and keep things in, in better, uh, better control. Nitrate, we run nitrate on all samples when they come in and, and uh, we, I really think even in, uh, in a corn belt you ought to be looking at nitrate because if you got nitrate in the soil, it's gonna, it's gonna leach, it's gonna go into tile lines. And you know the interesting about any nitrogen leaching, we go in a tile line Every anion, nitrate's an anion, every anion that goes out has to carry a cation with it. We, we run a few tile line water samples for a guy in Illinois, and when we run uh, sulfur, we have ICAP, and so we get calcium, magnesium, and potassium, and sodium out of it, and you'd be surprised how much calcium's going out in that tile water. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised the carbon going out in that tile water is bicarbonates. And, and uh, I haven't measured that part, but but understand that when, when, if there's one thing going through, a lot of things are going through. So it, it is soluble. Well, and then the other one that a few farmers are starting to ask for now is, is ammonium. The guys are using chicken litter and trying to figure out how much nitrate and ammonium they have. Rick Haney's test includes ammonium in, uh, in measuring the nitrogen availability. So... You can take the ammonium, if you have five parts per million ammonium, that'd be 10 or 12 pounds of nitrogen per acre. So if you can get 10 pounds of nitrogen on, you've saved, what, $4 an acre, something like that. So, so it's an important part to kind of uh, get your nitrogen in line, so to speak. We'll rejoin Ray's presentation but I want to take a moment and again thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for making this program possible. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at www.montagmfg.com or call today at 712-852-4574. In addition to understanding soil test results, it's also important for growers to know what levels of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and sulfur are required by crops and when and how they're taken up by the plant. Let's get back to the program now and listen as Ray Ward of Ward Laboratories discusses these plant nutrient requirements and uptake periods, as well as pertinent application guidelines. He'll also share some valuable insight into calcium, magnesium, and sodium balances in soils, 
and how much importance growers should attach to calcium magnesium ratios as a basis for fertilization or lining. nitrogen requirement uh, is what we're using a 1.1 pound of nitrogen per bushel and wheat is 2.4 milo 1.1 in grass and sunflowers we got on there as some examples but uh, when we when we started our lab in 1983 in Kearney I was using 1.3 pounds of nitrogen per bushel the farmers are criticizing me because I was making such low nitrogen recommendations and, and when the ammonia got to thousand dollars a ton we went back, we got some nitrogen economics from Iowa State. 1972, nitrogen's five cents a pound. 200 pounds is 10 bucks. So, you know, we, we've, we've really changed things. But, so, so I was criticizing about six, seven years ago, guys are criticizing me because my nitrogen recommendations are too high. I hadn't changed a thing. So I dropped it to 1.2. And I got to thinking about this, you know, we, we're recommending uh, 1.3 pounds of nitrogen, and, and we're taking out 0.67 pound of nitrogen per bushel, and that remainder's staying in that soil. And where in the heck is that going? So, so I'm down to 1.1. So 1.1 and minus 6.7, 0.67. We still got some stuff out there in the, in the, that could be lost if we don't, don't manage it. So, so always remember that, and, and of course the cover crops, I put in here, finally, uh, clovers and cover crops, 50 to 80 pounds. Don't know for sure, and the guys ask those questions. And so for a few guys, we, if you have a cover crop, you wonder how much nutrients are in your cover crop, take a yard square, clip everything off, stuff it in a great big garbage bag, send it to us, ask for the cover crop test, and we'll weigh it, we'll analyze it, we'll put it in uh, pounds of nutrients per acre uh, based on the yield of that, of that residue. And a lot of them, we get up to, oh, maybe from 80 to 200 pounds of nitrogen in that cover crop. How much of that's available? Uh, one, one year down at Salina, they asked me, and I shot it out 50%, kind of like when Dwayne says something, and everybody takes it and goes with it. Uh, so everybody says kind of 50% available of what's in that cover crop. So that's how I get that 50, 80. And soybeans, uh, in our computer system, we use 40, but... I tell farmers, if you have beans up to 60 bushel, you can use one pound of nitrogen per bushel, up to 60 bushel. Uh, so then the nitrogen recommendation is how we do that. We got yield times the nitrogen requirement, which is 1.1, minus residual nitrate in 24 or 36 inches. And if you don't take a subsoil, I just assume there's 25 pounds in the subsoil, which can be dangerous, but that's what we do. And then if we would run ammonium, we subtract that. We subtract the cover crop or legume, soybean, whatever it is, the manure credit, irrigation water credit. And in Nebraska, we have, have the privilege of getting some free nitrogen that, from the previous applications, and, and we can cut that nitrogen, and we should be cutting that. And in this example uh, here, uh, corn after soybeans, uh, 240 bushel times 1.1 is 264 pounds nitrogen, subtracted nitrate. Subtract the past beans, subtract the, the amount of nitrogen recommended, 158 pounds. Well, if you, had, if you had the cover crop in there and you got 30 pounds of nitrogen from that, you could, you could subtract that. Uh, the, the sad part is when you have a cover crop growing, the nitrate in the soil is gone. It's, it's very low, so the nitrogen is transferred into the 
cover crop. So it's probably about the same if you had a cover crop versus that. But you, if you had 10 pounds in irrigation water, you got 10 pounds from ammonia, 148, 10 pounds in irrigation water, 138 pounds of nitrogen. Put 138 pounds of nitrogen on for 240 bushel corn, can you do it? And I think we, a lot of people still overapply nitrogen. So when the, when the plant takes up these nutrients, we try to, you know, in the olden days, we put all the nitrogen on in the fall or in the spring. And I asked guys, if you, if you took a load of hay out the cows and said, I'll come back next year and feed you again, how are they going to do? And so the other part is that can fat corn produce as good as skinny corn? So you put the nitrogen out and the corn gets really dark green in June and it's really fat and Mrs. Obama says fat kids don't perform as well as skinny kids and you got to change the diet. And uh, <laughs> so maybe we ought to be feeding the corn as it goes along. But, but if you look at that, up there about 70% or 30% of the nitrogen is taken up after pollination. So we need some late season nitrogen. And, and I know in, in Nebraska with the pivots, it's easy to do, but we're gonna to have to maybe think of some equipment where we could put the last shot of nitrogen on maybe after tasseling, after pollination, to really get the best use of our nitrogen. So just something to think about in, in Nebraska, we're doing a lot of those kind of things. And then just to split the application and try to feed the corn more often. And, and I know in, in a lot of cases you, you can side dress and that's about the last application you put on. So, uh, but, but think about how you might improvise and, and feed the corn later because the, the nutrients are being taken up that whole growing season and we need to worry about that. Uh, phosphorus, uh, we told you for years that phosphorus doesn't move, it's tons of particles and blah, 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 all that stuff. And I've learned over years that the textbooks really aren't very accurate in some of that stuff. And, and so, yes, phosphorus does move in the soil three-quarters of an inch in a silt loam and up to two inches in a sandy loam soil. So we can get that movement. I had a, a phosphorus experiment up at South Dakota State in the, in the 60s, and I put on really high phosphorus trying to create a zinc deficiency. And in 18, 1989, uh, South Dakota State reported on that, and that phosphorus had moved down into the 12 to 18-inch zone. So, so phosphorus does move over time, and if you're putting phosphorus on, you will get, get the phosphorus movement. We got, we got guys in feedlots, 500 part per million phosphorus in the topsoil in the eight to 36 inch test, 100 to 120 part per million phosphorus. Don't ever say phosphorus doesn't move. It's moving and, and you put too much, if you got too much phosphorus on, you keep putting it on, it's still gonna move. And, and uh, if it gets to the groundwater, then what are you gonna do? You know, the kind of thing. And so we gotta really manage it a lot better than what we're doing. And then I just say phosphorus is not fixed, but remains available for future, future plants. Understand that we, you know, 20 or 25% of the phosphorus you put on is taken up by the plants that year. That doesn't mean you lost the rest of it. It means the rest of it's in the soil to be used in future years. It's not tied up. The, remember the number of soil particles. Phosphorus attaches those clays. And then the roots come along, and they, it's, they're pretty big compared to those clays and they can't get to every one of them. That's why the efficiency is what it is. It's, it's, but the phosphorus is still there available. And so what phosphorus test should you shoot for? And, and uh, this is one, Beck says five part per million for that Olson P, which would be about eight part per million Bray, or Malik, and, and uh, 
my contention is, why would I want to extract all the phosphorus out? Because it's going to be hard to get it back in there once, once we get it out. It's going to take time to get it back. And so put some on to kind of maintain that soil test. But when you're above 25, if you're in that 150 bushel range, if you're above 25, you don't need to put any on. If you're on the, on the really high producing areas of irrigated land in Nebraska, we're saying 35 to 40 part per million. If I'm at that, if I'm at that level, then if I got an economic time, I can skip a year and phosphorus not hurt myself, and and uh, then maintain that. But if you're above 50, uh, you don't need to be putting any phosphorus on. If you want to use a pop-up, put something else in there, uh, water or maybe a little nitrogen. You, know, you don't need to put phosphorus on. And and the guys that uh, we have a crop consultant in Kearney that when the soil test is above 50, he uses nitrogen as a starter in a two-by-two two placement. And he gets the same response as he does from a 1034 hole. So it's, you know, it's some of that starter response, I think, is nitrogen. So if you've got high phosphorus, don't put any more phosphorus on it. Then it just saves you that, that money. And uh, for guys' sakes, do soil testing. You understand I run a soil testing lab, so I have to promote some of those things. But... but uh, so these, these are just the levels, and if you're in that, if you're in the 13 to 25 range, here, that means you're putting on about half of what, in that medium range, you're putting on about half the phosphorus that the crop is removing. You don't have to put the total amount on. If you continue to put on crop removal, you're going to raise your soil tests up to high levels in time. So kind of, kind of monitor your soil tests over time and, and uh, make sure that you're you're doing the, the thing uh, correctly. And, and I, I, I chose the 40 part per million on those high yields because the, the crop consultants and, and the fertilizer dealers say that the guys are growing the best corn, their 300 bushel corn in Nebraska, have those high tests. And, uh, and so uh, you can get by. Now, you're not going to make any money putting phosphorus on. What you're doing is maintaining the soil test. In Minnesota had an experiment where they had a low test, put phosphorus on, got a nice 17 bushel response. You put phosphorus on a high test, got no response. The high test yield was 195. The low test yield with phosphorus is 172. Which one made the most money? The, one, the highest yield, even though the, the cost is the same. The higher yield made more. And so, so those are the kind of, when you talk about fertility, I'm not talking about in the olden days, we were worried about how much money you made on the fertilizer you put on because we're trying to get farmers to put on. We know we've got to have it now. Now it's a matter of getting your soil test built and maintaining that level, wherever that is. So the phosphorus, and when you look at that, 40% of the phosphorus taken up after, after pollination. And, and uh, so you have to have phosphorus in the soil for the roots to feed on. And if you don't have, if you have it all in one spot, you can't, they're not cows, they, they have more than one mouth. They're, they're feeding at the root tips. And so, so we have to have phosphorus out in that soil. You can, if you, know, if you band it, make sure the bands are in different places each year, and, and uh, then you can get it spread out. But uh, I, I've, you know, I use a starter, and then if you need more phosphorus, just broadcast it every two or three years, whatever you need. And if you're really low, you have to broadcast some every year. But... Those are the kind of things I look at. Uh, potassium, there, uh, I know you guys got some low potassium readings, and, and uh, I chose 150 bushel uh, corn, 
corn, uh, uh, 160 parts per million potassium. I know some states are down to 120, but, but that's kind of a place I would try to maintain that, that test on the high yielding areas. Uh, we're at 200, and, and then I begin to wonder if we're growing 300 bushel corn, where should we be? And, and uh, it's just one of those things that you got to look at. Here's the recommendations again with those different rates. And uh, <clears throat> this is what I wanted to, wanted to talk about here. Uh, potassium uptake in the plant. 95% of the potassium is taken up by tasseling time. And then, and then, then it, it, har it, 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 it cannibalizes the parts of the plant to put potassium into the grain over here. But 95% of it's taken up here by the time it pollinates. So, so if you're growing 300 bushel of corn, you're building this factory. Think about how much potassium is taken up per day, because that's going to be 250 pounds of nitrogen or potassium, and, and the demand for that potassium is going to be great in those time frames. So, so we need to have enough potassium in the soil solution to keep supplying that. And then if we get a little bit of dry stress, moisture stress, then you need a higher one. So I'm, I'm toying with the idea, and there's some guys want to maintain that up at 300 instead of 100, or instead of 200, but right, we're still on 200 right now. Uh, sulfur, we talked about sulfur yesterday, and I keep changing these tests. Uh, sulfur's like nitrogen, uh, the higher the, the yield, uh, the more sulfur is needed, and, and, uh, and so we have these requirements 20, uh, that we calculate out the sulfur. And, and most of our soil tests, probably this, this fall, we're running from about 8 up to 16 or so. And that, and that level's been dropping in our soil tests, as some other people showing on the sulfur thing. And, and it's because our air is cleaned up and we, we need to put the sulfur on. And these are requirements that we have, and it make a, make a calculation. Uh, so so in, uh, in, in 28 or 32 percent, to have some sulfur in that. Uh, some guys are at 10% thiosulfate, and some are at 8% uh, or 12%, uh, 15% thiosol in with the 32. So that's a good, good mix and, and uh, those kind of things. This is uh, the way we calculate that. Uh, just 22 pound, 0.22 pounds of sulfur per bushel. Uh, 240 bushel corn takes 53 pounds of sulfur. Soil test is 14, and we just take that. We just take it times 2.4 to assume that's what's in eight inches soil, and that's what we're using. In some so in South Dakota, the guys take two foot samples because in a subsoil we might have 200 parts per million, 400 pounds of sulfur in a subsoil, or in, in a lot of our areas we don't have that accumulation of sulfate in the in the soil root zone. So we're just usually just use use the eight inch soil sample. So I recommend, yeah, probably from zero to 30 pounds of sulfur for most of our uh, grain crops. Uh, calcium, magnesium, sodium. You know, there's a lot of questions about CEC and base saturation and, and those things. And there's just an article come out recently again on uh, kind of refuting the idea that you've got a, a certain ratio you're supposed to keep. Don't worry about the ratios too much. I, I have two things I look at on that base saturation. And in our case, if it's 30% hydrogen or more, you better be limey. 
And I know some guys say 10%, but at 10%, I, I wouldn't worry about liming yet, but maybe 25%, but 30%, I think you really need to be putting lime on. And you can look at that and, and uh, say, yeah, I've got to put it on. Uh, then the other one is sodium. And when the sodium gets above 5% on the base saturation, sodium begins to disperse those clays and starts to seal that, that soil. So uh, on, your, on your cation change or, or the cations and the base saturation, the hydrogen and the sodium, or the H and the Na, are the two things to look at and worry about those. In summary, calcium-magnesium ratio concept is unproven and should not be used as a basis for fertilization. In addition to macronutrients like N, P, K, and sulfur, micronutrients, or trace elements, also perform a number of crucial plant functions. But before we go back to the program to delve into that, I'd like to take a minute to talk about the upcoming 2017 National Nil-Till Conference, which will be held in St. Louis January 10th through the 13th. Featuring top experts with worldwide experience, this special 25th anniversary event includes more than 100 money-making sessions and unlimited networking with the best of the no-till community. Register today for a discounted rate of just $319 at www.notillconference.com. Now let's return to the program and listen to Ray Ward discuss appropriate soil test levels and application recommendations for the trace elements of zinc, manganese, copper, boron, and chloride, and also cover all the factors that affect active nutrient uptake of these micronutrients. In the Raleigh Meyer that worked for UC Davis, uh, I asked Raleigh what that ratio ought to be, and he said, you know, he thought a little bit and said, calcium to magnesium. If it's one calcium, the five magnesium, if it's bigger than that, you need to worry about the magnesium. But, so it's just an example of uh, we don't need to worry about those things. And then the trace elements, and I don't have a whole lot of time left, and, uh, and uh, so we'll go through these a little faster probably. Zinc is the one I start with because it's most important in our Great Plains. Zinc test needs to be above one part per million. And in Nebraska, guys argue they want one and a half or two but I haven't seen any data that says above one if, that you don't need to have it any higher than that. And, and the guys that are below one and trying to use a starter fertilizer with a little bit of zinc in it, they'll have to keep putting zinc on every year. If, you, if you're above one part per million, you don't need to worry about it. Stop, stop spending the money on a zinc chelate type thing in a starter. Uh, there's one other thing on the, on the zinc in 1034-0 that... Uh, if, you're, if you want to put zinc in with 1034-0 and you're not using EDTA zinc, limit it to one pound of zinc to seven gallons of 1034-0. Don't mix it any thicker than that. And I say that because our recommendations are pretty high. And so our, our zinc recommendations are a corrective application. And I'm kind of a firm believer that I would put, my, put the zinc on that the soil test calls for and not worry about it anymore. It might cost quite a bit to begin with, but, or you could cut it in half and put it on twice. And then I say down at the bottom, if, you're, if you want to put it on annual application, divide by six, but you'll get your most response by putting it on early. And, and uh, there's a lot of talk about MES, uh, fertilizer, and uh, all, everything's in a, in a pallet, and I tell guys that the first time we got the company mixing things together was in the 60s in South Dakota. 
and it was so good. And then that all went away and went to broad, uh, to, to uh, bulk blending. And then in the uh, 80s, or no, the late 70s uh, in Idaho, they come up with the Unipel fertilizer, supposed to be the grandest thing. And then it went away, and now Mosaic come out with their grandiose. Uh, so I've seen this cycle three times. And uh, I think what you need to do is blend fertilizer together for what your soil needs and not what somebody wants to make for you. And I know they've called me and given me hell because I wouldn't recommend their product. But, uh, manganese. I, I, we, we got eye caps in our lab now, and so we run a lot more manganese. By the way, we're doing these soil tests, you know, DTPA, phosphorus is malic, uh, malic 3, the cations are ammonium acetate, and the, and the trace elements are zinc, iron, manganese, copper, is DTPA. And I know some laboratories are using malic 3 for all these nutrients. And, and I've, I'm too old-fashioned. These soil tests that we're using is calibrated by the research. And, and uh, when we go to kind of guessing what Malik 3 is doing for all those, I think we're missing what the farmer needs. And so I've chose to stay with the four different extracts instead of uh, trying to do it all in one extract. So manganese uh, below three part per million could be a problem. Uh, manganese deficiency, it kind of looked like an iron corrosis problem. And uh, the soil treatment, 20, 25 pounds of manganese sulfate per acre is kind of what they're doing in the Republican River Valley of Nebraska. Uh, they say it works. Uh, I talked to a guy, uh, Mori Vitaish up in Michigan one time. Uh, he just laughed at me when I said we're recommending broadcast manganese. So, so kind, of, kind of remember that. I don't know a whole lot about it. And if you've got manganese deficiencies, you probably know how to handle that better than, than I do. And if you're going to do any foliar, then just follow the labels on the products. Manganese tests uh, is kind of what our recommendation there uh, as an element. And, and so uh, a friend uh, that works for Cargill, he's kind of promoted that I raise my manganese tests. Uh, the old uh, uh, Lindsay... Uh, uh, method at uh, the GPA method at Colorado State where Lindsay developed this, he said above one was adequate. So I'm up at three. So, but we do see a lot of low manganese and high pH soils. And copper is another one on some sands. We have low copper. Uh, up in, uh, the, in Canada, in, the, in North Dakota, uh, with high organic matter, it seems like the organic matter is chelating copper so that the plant can't get it. And, and they have they put more copper on than what what we do in our area. And then the, the potato guys in Nebraska, they like to see the copper test above 0.6, where I think it's adequate if it's above 0.2. And, and so we just have a few low coppers on sandy soils, otherwise uh, we're in pretty good shape. Boron for most uh, corn and most in, in most crops, hot water soluble boron test should be above 0.25. Uh, that's kind of Oklahoma State calibration. And for alfalfa, sugar beets, and peanuts, the boron test should be above 0.5. And we're using hot water soluble boron as our test, not DTPA, or, or not Malik 3 uh, boron test, either one of those. So this is our, uh, the calibration that Oklahoma State has a lot of boron problems on peanuts and probably had more boron data that 
uh, can use. And the recommendations, uh, we have up in northeast Nebraska some low boron areas that uh, they're grid sampling and, and uh, so they're, they're putting on boron where it's needed. I, haven't, I don't know yet, I haven't heard if they're getting yield response to that or not, but there's a lot of, a lot of people trying to sell boron and, and uh, I have a farmer down south, southwest of Kearney that uh, his boron tests are at four, four to six part per million. And he was saying that he really thinks boron is good. And he said he had 100, 120 bushel corn, and I didn't tell him that his neighbors are getting 100, 240 and 250. But uh, so I, I worry about some of those things. And remember, in the good old days, uh, borax was used as a weed or a, a, a sterilant, soil sterilant, for noxious weeds. So boron is toxic. So if you're using boron, make sure it's a small, small amount. And chloride is the last one, and if you're using 0060, potash and chloride is not an issue. In the Great Plains, it is an issue. And, and uh, so uh, K-State has got really good data on uh, wheat, corn, and milo. I don't think the broadleaf soybeans and uh, uh, those kind of crops are as affected by chloride deficiency as much as the grasses are. But that's kind of the recommendation from K-State, 20 pounds if it's less than three parts per million and 10 pounds if it's uh, four to six uh, parts per million. And that would be in a two foot soil profile. And if we don't get the two foot soil profile, just eight inches, we uh, just assume it's the same old way. Certainly it's much harder for no-tillers to make solid decisions on nutrient applications and get the most from their input investments if conditions aren't conducive for plant nutrient uptake. Ward will wrap up this No-Till Farmer podcast by discussing the soil and environmental factors that affect active nutrient uptake. As an added bonus, Ward will close up his presentation by discussing the nutrient value of poultry and feedlot manure and swine slurry and the importance of returning these animal manures to the fields at proper rates. Oxygen. You got to have oxygen in that soil. You've heard all the wet stuff we had this year, and all the yellow corn and all those things. If you've got good soil structure and you get air in there, you can take up nutrients. If you have a lack of oxygen, you can't take up nutrients, and the corn turns yellow because it's, it's not nitrogen leached out, it's because there's no oxygen in the soil. And, that, and all this stuff in soil health, that oxygen, uh, aeration, is so important. So the, so the guys at York, Nebraska last year... Uh, Dryland soybean corners were making more than irrigated soybeans. And the crop consultant said, what do you think is the problem? And I just wrote back and said, lack of oxygen. I think they're overwatering, and the beans re responded. So the best placement method, minimizing fertilizer reaction to the soil and maximizing it with the roots. And, and that's what Beck talks about, putting in that band, maximizing or, or minimizing contact with the soil. And I talk about broadcasting it to maximizing with the roots. And if you're in a no-till type thing, uh, I can find roots growing right underneath the stalk. Corn stalks, you pick those up and you see roots growing right under there. So they're taking up the nutrients off the top. And if you're putting on fertilizer every year, it's kind of moving down anyway. So we need to worry about that. And just real quickly, it did say manure in there. So just to go through, uh, this is poultry manure. I know a lot of guys are using the poultry litter. And, it's a very good source of uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. 
And, and uh, that's a total content here in, a, in an average uh, of about 85 samples we did. So you know, per ton, 30, 30 to 40 pounds of nitrogen. Uh, phosphorus can get up to 40 pounds of P2O5. And potassium is a little short, but uh, and some sulfur in there. So, so and remember, the manure has all the plant nutrients in it. Because that, we harvest that, we took that off, the animals eat it or we eat it, we excrete the minerals, and then we need to put that back on the land. And you, so then you need analysis to see so put it on at the appropriate rates. And, and just a quickly, uh, feedlot manure, uh, and that's with a, what distillers grain being fed in a lot of feedlots now, the phosphorus tests are really getting high. Really great sources of phosphorus in some of the feedlot manure. Uh, dairy manure is not near as strong as a feedlot manure. But this is a median value of a couple hundred samples that we have there. And then like a swine slurry, and it says available first year. But some of that heavy stuff, that stuff that stinks so damn bad, really has lots of nutrients in it, and especially phosphorus. And then when you, when you, when you dig out the pits, after you had them there 20 years or something, they clean those pits out. The phosphorus is in that solids on the bottom of the pits. So those are great sources of uh, phosphorus for you. And in, uh, in, in the liquid that you might pump off in the lagoons, uh, that's high in potassium. But in, in the case of swine, we don't feed near as much potassium, so that's, it's lower in swine than it would be on, on the feedlots. Important part of the nutrient application. We'd like to sincerely thank Ray Ward of Ward Laboratories for sharing his insights and experiences on the important topics of soil testing and nutrient management to help no-tillers both optimize their crop yields and use fertilizer more efficiently and effectively. For those listeners who would like to hear more than a dozen tips from no-tillers about how they use fertilizer more efficiently and responsibly on their farm, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessertermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled f-a-r-m-r and on our no-till farmer facebook page for ray ward founder and president of ward laboratories and our entire staff here at no-till farmer i'm john dauberstein thanks for listening